take our Bibles tonight and turn to the Gospel according to John. We'll read from chapter 19, this inspired aspect of the, the crucifixion of the Savior. And we'll begin reading at verse 16 through verse 30. Hear the word of God. Then he delivered him, Pilate delivered Jesus to them, the authorities, to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put on it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now therefore stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, talking to John. Then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother, and from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Thus far we read of the demise, as we say, of the crucified Savior. It is finished is the word that we would consider in our meditation on Good Friday. Of course, this is the word of the cross. There are seven such words of the cross, as we call them. And our text is the sixth word of Jesus from the cross. It's spoken just after the three hours of darkness and just before he died. The three words of our translation, it is finished, are one word in the Greek original, tetelestai, tetelestai, the Greek perfect tense indicating that something has been done and it is now Perfected, it is completed to be done no more. Tetelestai, it is finished. Some have argued that this is the greatest word ever spoken, a tremendous triumphal cry 
The greatest word ever spoken by the greatest man who ever lived on the greatest day in the history of the universe. Indeed, in that one word, tetelestai, these three, it is finished, is great revelation of the great Savior and his work and accomplishment of salvation, and a word that gives great comfort to us, great direction, and great motivation. So today, this Good Friday, we and whoever's listening in on the internet would hear the word of our Lord on this Friday of our Savior's death, the Friday of our Savior's triumph over sin and death, as he says, it is finished. I have two points here. First of all, the cry of victories that this cry, it is finished, expresses. And then we want to consider the implication of that among those who hear the cry of victories. The cry of victories. When Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished, or we could translate, it is done, it is accomplished. It would not seem accurate, and I speak reverently, but speaking as a man who knows, as we do, the other events that were crowded into that that morning and then that afternoon. Jesus is just hanging there, nailed to a cross. It seems like he's accomplishing nothing there. He's just dying, and in that dying, he's not doing anything. It's being done unto him. He's being killed. Life is being taken from him, or so it appears. In fact, the sad fact is that if anyone is getting things done in this time, Jesus is crucified. It seems as if the men of evil are and the devils from hell are accomplishing their good pleasure. And this is... Uh, revealed to us, but this is this cruelty. You know that, don't you? And children, we, uh, we preach a lot to you here and a lot that's hard for little ears to hear, but we have to hear this, the cruelty of man and of devils and men inspired by devils at this time of Jesus and his demise. He's falsely accused in the dead of night, treated as a thief and a robber, insurrectionist, led to the trials of the Jews and then to Pilate. And it's a big kangaroo court. It's a setup. And it, it's, it's something that's not going to go well because these people were bent on their own form of justice, which is their own self-justification. In Caiaphas's house, for example, the high priest's house, he's blindfolded as Jesus. And you think of that, he's blindfolded and then he's buffeted about. So he has no opportunity to uh, prepare himself for the blows. He's blindsided uh, sighted, as we would say. And so there's, there's all occasion for injuries, even great ones, to... To be done to this man who's blindfolded and at the whim of these cruel priests and their following. 
And then among the Romans, he's mocked some more and whipped. Interesting and um, almost uh, a shameful thing to think about the 39 lashes with the whip that he was given at that time. And there were cat of nines tails, we would say, either leather whips, but at the end of these whips were bits of glass and bits of metal. And the purpose of this, exam- this, this whipping was to examine the prisoner. And it was called the third degree of severity that the Romans would, would execute when they were performing these, these whippings. And it was meant to bring out a confession. In fact, if a person had crimes and when they confessed to them, the next lash would be less severe than the former one. But if a person like Jesus had no crimes to confess and he didn't, each lash would be heavier. And oftentimes the people who were whipped didn't survive the whipping was so bad, and their backs exposed to the person who was whipping them, their hands tied to a post, their backs were fully exposed, and they were lacerated beyond, beyond repair, and they would be almost bleeding to death at that point. The Romans had a way about them of being cruel. The devil at this time is being the cruelest, for he's putting into the air the lie that Jesus is worth beating. They are, as Hebrews reminds us, heaping contradiction on himself, that is, saying things that are against the word that he is. You know what it's like when your reputation is maligned, or for any reason you have some suspicion that people are speaking evil of you. It hurts. It really does. Imagine you're perfect and all of this evil is being heaped upon you, all these lies being said about you. This is Jesus who is being uh, put to the test. And of course, the hardest thing about it all is that when he gets on the cross... His Father in heaven is there residing over everything. He's sovereign. We preach that here, the sovereignty of God. And it is his will that even by the hands of wicked men, he would be launching this great punishment upon his Son for our sins. And so that is just before This word of our cross, it is finished, and in the hours of darkness, Jesus experiences the worst experience that anyone could ever have, the reality of hell. The reality of hell is to be cast out of the presence of God except for the wrath of God. God is there in his wrath. It's to be one who is excommunicated from all of the favor of God, and this is what Jesus is enduring, and this is that first word of that psalm, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The fourth word of the cross, Jesus the derelict for our sake. And all of this wrath of God, Jesus himself 
expresses it's breaking him. It's breaking him. There's something there of hell and something, someone there in hell, and that's the son. The one who doesn't deserve to go to hell. We deserve to go to hell. And though we can't understand these things, we know from the Bible that hell is forever. There had to be some sort of equivalence of eternity so that from between the, 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 the first hour on the cross to the very last hour and the sixth hour, eternity, long time, children, beyond all time. No light at the end of the tunnel, as we say, darkness. And that's why the world is enveloped in darkness there, to symbolize these things so we understand something from heaven's going on, not an eclipse of the sun, but an eclipse of the favoring God. He's seen no more in his favor, especially by the sun. Well, at this point then, it seems like a lot's being accomplished, but Jesus isn't accomplishing it. Things are being done to him. And yet here he says, it is finished. And this, beloved, is not the cry of a man who's simply worn out. I'm done. That's it. Uh, I'm done. I'm going to die. And then he gives up the ghost. No. This is Jesus in full uh, capacity of his senses, though he is indeed in pain. But he's conscious of something he's going to declare now. And it's called the victory. It is finished is the victory cry of Jesus. Precious word of the gospel. In fact, it expresses the fundamental truth of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It is finished refers to his work of atoning for the sins of his people. And that through suffering the wrath of God for sin. We read in the Bible, by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. One offering. And by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then, but now once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Those are New Testament references we could go back to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, who extols the death of Jesus in prophecy. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. Then Daniel the prophet, he prophesies in. He joins the company of the great prophets and. Chapter 9 of verse 24, uh, and verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This is what Jesus is saying here. Here's the triumph, the king, yes, of the Jews and of the universe, the king who is the king of God, that is, 
on the behalf of the living God, he's declaring the triumph over sin. In fact, he's declaring the foundation of all salvation is laid now in his blood. This because the satisfaction of the justice of God has been met. He's accomplished something to satisfy God, to appease his wrath for the sins of his people. He bears that wrath and he's burned up so that we might burn not at all. He took the fire. uh, Prophecies are being fulfilled in him. Promises too. He's the yea and amen, and he says it with his blood. He signs the fact that all the promises are fulfilled with his blood. Then it is finished means his suffering is ended, of course. The malice of the persecutors is ended. The counsel of God with regard to his sufferings is fulfilled, though he will still go to the grave and have to endure the tomb in his body for parts of three days. The ceremonial law is fulfilled. Everything that had to be fulfilled, that began to be fulfilled in the fullness of time, is now finished. Tetelestai is done. Mission accomplished. Finished. The word in that language, the Greek language, and in the Greek culture, strikingly was used in different settings. And you get the idea here, and children, you can understand this. For example, when a debtor owed a debt, they owe money, they borrow money from the bank, and they pay it back to the banker. The banker would put a stamp on the IOU or whatever, say, Tetelestai, it's paid in full. Interesting. A painting was finished. The artist would say, Tetelestai. If a priest found a perfect lamb for an offering, he'd say, Tetelestai. If a servant in that culture would be done with his work, he'd say to the master, Master, Tetelestai, it's finished. My work is finished. And you think of that with Jesus. He's saying all of these things. The debt is paid. The service is rendered. The painting's finished. What a work of art. And the perfect lamb is found and is sacrificed for the sins of his people. Cry of victory. It is finished. You hear that cry, beloved? You hear that? That's the cry that has to be sounded forth from pulpits and from our own lives. But there's more. For the fact is, not all of his work is finished. Not every aspect of the work of Jesus is finished. And yet, in a way, because this foundational work of the forgiveness of sins and the debt being paid there, that's finished. All the other work of Jesus is guaranteed to be finished. Redemption is accomplished here. We say there's another aspect of the work of salvation that remains to be done, and that's the application of salvation. It's accomplished. Now it needs to be applied. And so he's not lying here, but he's speaking here the truth of what is principally and powerfully done to yield inexorably 
that is irresistibly and necessarily the fruit of all this work of foundation laying. That's the application of salvation in all the world until the end comes. That too will be done. I think, for example, the very first work that Jesus performs after he dies, and that is resurrection from the dead. Resurrection from the dead is because of the finished work of Calvary. Calvary, it is finished, means there must be resurrection. For death cannot hold him who conquered death. The devil cannot hold him because his head has been been crushed by Jesus. God cannot hold him. The law cannot hold him. He has the right to go free. And according to the prophecy, he will. And he does. Resurrection, therefore, is principally, and in that word it is finished, begun to be, and therefore to be done itself. It's amazing. That, I suggest to you, is why all the prophecies of the Old Testament that speak of Jesus seeing the work of his hands and and the forecasting of resurrection, even before he's born, is because all of Jesus' work is one, and there's this founding work on the cross that leads to all of his other work being done as well. Then, for example, you think of his visit. He must do other work, and he will do other work after he dies. And because he's died for sinners and accomplished their salvation, he's going to visit those disciples for whom he died for 40 days. Make sure that they're clear on this. And Acts will say this is so many infallible proofs that he gives to these people. They need to know. Then he ascends to the right hand of God. And then he prays at the right hand of God. And the whole book of Acts, you know, as Luke tells us in the very first chapter, is a reflection upon what Luke had said in Luke. Luke said there, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do. Now I'm going to tell you in the book of Acts what he continued to do. So it's finished. The work of the accomplishment of salvation, but there's more work to do. The application of it, guaranteed to be sure to be done because the foundation was laid. The gathering of the church, the discipling of the nations, the whole book of Revelation, the opening of the seals by the Son of God, the history-long coming of the Son of God is a reflection upon the fact that there's more work to do, but that this work of gathering and defending the church shall be done and shall itself be perfected because Jesus laid the foundation and on Calvary. It was finished. So this is the cry, the cry of the one victory of the cross. It is finished. And of the anticipation of the many victories. It's a cry of victory after victory after victory because of the blood. And this is what should consume the church. You and I as we think upon these things on Good Friday. It is finished, should fill us with understanding, reverence, and 
reflection, and then, strikingly, a lot of doing for his sake, hearing the word and then doing it for Christ's sake. We ought to deal with the fact, however, that there's many who deny the implications and the significance of Jesus' words, it is finished. Most, for example, don't care what it was. It was finished on the cross. How can anything good be done on the cross by a man whom the majority said was guilty? His very work is suspect there, and certainly he's not accomplishing much on the cross. So most humans, they deny the significance of Good Friday, and they only go to church on Easter Sunday for Easter egg hunts for the children and bonnets that the women can flaunt as they go to church. The great denial of humanity is that God has entered this world and then that he's done something. And the great uh, denial of proud humanity is to deny the proud uh, to die in pride, the message that Jesus did something because we're in need of his doing something, we're in need of atonement. No one likes to know that they're a sinner. You don't like to know that, do you? I don't like to know that. God comes to me and says, you're a sinful preacher. You're a sinful husband. You're a sinful dad. You're a sinful man. And you go about posturing as a man of God, but I know how imperfect you are, and I don't like to hear that. It's true. I don't like to hear myself speak when I'm talking on behalf of God. Not naturally. In other sense, I love that. But we recoil at this, don't we? And It is finished. It can't be something. Maybe Jesus is saying this. Ah, yeah, that, I got it. And this is where most theology goes here. Jesus is saying, it is finished. My being a great example for everybody. That's what I'm doing here. I'm being an example. I am sealing with my blood this great cause of a great God with Ten Commandments, who's holy, and you should serve him too. It's a great cause, a great God. And you should lay your life down too and and give yourself for humanity's sake. And you should give to others too and and help them to, to understand the love of God that's manifest here. It's a lot, a lot of people say that. A lot of people live that way too. Call them humanists. And... Uh, very liberal theologians. But then there's much of evangelicalism, and they especially don't like the word finished. They understand the it has to do with redemption. But to say it's finished, it's done, that gets under theologians' skins and professors' skins. Here's why. We are of a nature to think that God needs our help and that we can help him. Most theologians today and religions today miss the it is finished, just like they miss the donkey and the humiliation of Jesus. They miss 
the finishing work of Jesus, the perfection of the redemption of Jesus. So they'll say something like this. Jesus died on the cross for everybody. And his is a potential forgiveness. It's there on, the, on Calvary. The blood is shed for you and for you and for you. Now, however, in order for it to be done for you, you must believe it. You must accept it and accept Jesus into your heart or you don't get saved. On your decision depends the value of the cross. Jesus couldn't really mean it is finished unless you say, I accept it. It's finished and made good to me when I receive that work. This is called Arminianism, semi-Pelagianism, whatever ism that has to do with God who does things in a half sort of way. And always not violating what people call the free will of man. God saves sinners who need to save themselves. So it is finished, passes right over the heads of these people. Right over the heads of these people. It's like, in an article I read, it's like a man coming to a house and it's, it's perfectly finished. It's even for sale. And the man looks at the house, doesn't even know anything about buildings, it's not finished. Or a man goes into a museum and he, he, he sees a, a, a beautiful work of art on the wall, maybe, maybe a Mona Lisa. He says, this is not finished. I'll change the nose, do something different here. Or whatever else he goes to, Symphony, maybe, and he says, no, that's an unfinished symphony, even if it's a finished symphony. Not finished. And he doesn't know a thing about symphonies. And after all, it's not up to him to say it's not finished. The, the composer is the one who finished it and wrote it and doesn't need person's opinions to do that. Well, beloved, think of the arrogance of people hearing the word, it is finished, and every Good Friday, it is finished, and then having a theology and a way of looking at salvation to get people responsible, that means it's really not finished. The beauty of the atonement is, it is finished. We are forgiven. All our sins are paid for. That's before we're born. That's 2,000 years ago. Redemption was accomplished for you and for me. Now, it's applied to us through faith, through our believing, through our being given the Holy Spirit. But before that, there's a foundation so that it's impossible that those for whom the, the salvation, uh, the foundation is laid not be included in the house, the church of God, not be forgiven. Beloved, used to be, for example, another way people deny this, 
I'll be brief on this. This, this bracelet, remember that? It's called WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? And again, Jesus is an example. And before you think of doing anything, you better think about that bracelet, WWJD. Maybe some, I'm not criticizing the bracelet necessarily. But I suggest to you, if you want to have other bracelets, you've got to have at least three altogether to be theologically correct and truly motivated correctly. For example, how about a WHJD bracelet, what has Jesus done bracelet? Or a WIJD bracelet, what is Jesus doing? The focus on Jesus did something and is doing something, and then you can have your bracelet, what would Jesus do, I suppose, but more properly would be, now what should I do? The focus of the text, the, the focus of the gospel of Good Friday is Jesus, after all. Not what I'm going to do with Jesus, but what has Jesus done with me, for me. And that's the beauty of Good Friday. And what happened there, and what Jesus declared happened there, and that the work goes on of applying salvation because it's accomplished. And so that there's this firm foundation and this sure hope and guarantee that everything that Jesus did will come to fruition as he applies it from heaven. And even now, and this is this what leads to our motivation in our doing something here in response, using the church to accomplish or to apply the salvation that he's accomplished. So it is finished, and it is bound to be finished, but the beauty is that Jesus even uses us. So we come here to find what Jesus did and know that he's doing something, he's applying the salvation that he's accomplished, and we find out from the Bible everywhere. He says, now, therefore, because I am with you, I send you into the world and you disciple the nations for me. And you be zealous for good works because that's what I died for. I died to work the work of salvation, to lay the foundation. Now you, church, build on it. Build on the foundation. Marry in the Lord. Preach the word of God. Be Christian students Workers, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, children, husbands, wives. Be my servants. To testify the truth that it is finished means it's being applied to. And these people, they live for me because they know, they know. The main thing is accomplished. The end is in sight. The victory is sure. That means this, beloved. If it's true that your sins are forgiven, if that's true, and if it's true that that truth is applied to you, so redemption is accomplished, your sins are forgiven, and now that truth is being applied, here's what you got to do when you sin. 
You've heard it is finished. A few words what that means. First of all, it means don't atone for your sin. Don't try to. A lot of people do that. I got to make up for it. A lot of theologies lead to that because, again, they don't really think that there is forgiveness. It's there. They think they got to get forgiven somehow as if they need to atone for their sins. It's not how it works. Atonement's done. And don't think for a minute when you sin that now you're exposed to the wrath of God. No way! No way! Jesus bore the wrath of God. You could never bear the wrath of God. Now, does that mean that God's not angry with you when you sin? No, he is angry with you when you sin. But he's a father who's angry with you and who loves you. And yes, he chastises you, but that's different than punishing and showing wrath upon you. He whom the Lord chastens, he loves. And so when you sin, don't think of anything other than it is finished. And now this, because that work has to be applied to you, now you've got to do this. This is a requirement. This is a, a calling when you sin. Don't atone for your sin. Don't make up a theology of purgatory. Don't act as if, woe is me, I'm just a wretched sinner. When you're forgiven your sins on Calvary. But then, because you know redemption's being applied, repent. That's what you do when you sin. You're sorry for it. That's our responsibility. Repent. Repent of your sins. That means turn from them. Be sorry for them. Don't continue in your sins. Don't do that. That is a shameful thing for those who confess it is finished because the one who says it is finished is now himself at work applying salvation through the gathering of the church by the preaching of the gospel, calling sinners to repent and then believe that you are forgiven. That's how that works. That's how we should be thinking to have the mind of Christ. And beloved, that's great joy. And if we understand that, we're going to build as a church on that foundation that is laid for sinners. And as a church, our agenda is on, therefore, building on the foundation for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Not any other agenda. Not some political agenda to become a political force in this world and have a kingdom just like the world. No, Jesus didn't die for that. He died for sin. He died for sinners. He died for this heavenly kingdom on the earth and to be in all the world. But it's so that the nations are discipled, not just cultured, but discipled, forgiven, and entered and, and given entrance into the kingdom and to be God's representatives. That's what we say when we hear Jesus say, It is finished. Lots of work to do, but because it's finished, we have every hope that Jesus will get it done. Because, you see, 
the nature of our Savior, the perfect nature of our Savior, is to finish what he began. And when he finished the accomplishment of our salvation, he will finish that, and he will, that is, he will apply that so that the house he's building on the foundation will be this beautiful mansion, and then will be taken to glory. Beloved, it is finished. That's Jesus' own triumphal cry. May it be ours. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless this congregation with the knowledge of forgiveness and of the truth of redemption accomplished and applied. The wonderful joy of the guaranteed hope of the nations, the people of God being made to be the people of God, their sins atoned for, their hearts filled with the Holy Spirit, and their lives bearing fruit of a people who knows the Savior is for them. We pray, Father, help us to rise up from this house of worship and be worshipful all the evening and all the day until we enter your house again and hear the blessed news of the resurrection of the Savior. Hear our prayers and and bless us in the name of the crucified Savior, the triumphant one, who's now risen and coming again. Amen.